Section 35 of The Heirloom This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 35 of The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle Volume 3, Chapter 8 Birds of a Feather Brought Together but Merville Garnier was not dead. With that reckless daring and contempt for danger which mark the few acts in which he has come under our notice, like as he survived the seething cauldron of leaping, roaring flame in which that clever world's reporter told its readers that he was burnt to a cinder in Long Island City, so likewise he survived the perilous leap which he had taken to save his life by trusting it to the scant mercy of the boiling tide. Verily, the man seemed to live a charmed existence. Or perhaps like that feline quadruped, which purrs so complacently on the domestic hearth, Merville Garnier may be credited with a singular plurality of lives. In the early dawn of the November morning, following the night upon which the woman Kathleen Venner had warned him of his near-approaching danger, and of the coming of Paul Nugas with his two officers of the New York police. In the early dawn of that November morning, the coasting schooner Chesapeake Bell, bound for New York from the south with a cargo of fruit, when near the mouth of the East River, off Governor's Island, ran nearly foul of an inanimate mass which was upon a log drifting out with the tide. By the master's orders, the Chesapeake Bell hove to, a boat was lowered, and the apparently drowned body of a human being was lifted on board and lay on the deck of the schooner livid, motionless, and to all appearances dead. Having, however, no taste for such cargo on board his vessel as a missing corpse, the captain of the Chesapeake Bell directed that the body should be taken ashore. But whither? There was only one receptacle for such flotsam as dead men's bodies picked up off the surface of the sea, and that was the morgue. So in less than twelve hours from his desperate leap for liberty and life, Merville Garnier was brought back to the very spot from which he had cast himself so recklessly and daringly onto the scant clemency of the merciless tide. The body was deposited in a chamber of the lugubrious office. Then incessantly, hour after hour for many hours, those restorative measures were persevered in, which those attached to the institution knew well, only by too frequent experience, how to employ until finally perseverance was crowned with success, and the once apparently dead man Merville Garnier again opened his eyes. The blood again, though at first sluggishly, coursed through his veins, little by little warmth, animation, and mental consciousness returned. Having recovered thus far, Garnier was removed from the morgue to within the precincts of the Bellevue Hospital, where he was, of course, soon recognized and known, and before many hours had elapsed, the devotion of Kathleen Venner again brought her to her lover's bedside, for she and her love was as vigilant as was the little ferret man, Paul Nugas, in his pursuit of his quarry to the death. 
the written story and confession of the Vernwood crime by the convict Michael Gervois, which as well as to the knowledge of Colonel Vandermeulen, had likewise come into Mr. Lumley's hands. This written account, coupled with the remarkable tale related to him by Martha and old Jeff Massey, had the effect of widely opening Mr. Lumley's eyes, of widely extending his knowledge of the once obscure history of Bertram Gonald's unusual birth, a manner of birth as uncommon as had been his manner of life and manner of death, and of the tragedy of his untimely fate. He now saw that there had been an influence, or influences at work beneath the surface of the dark tide of crime, which had rolled so sinistrously along, of which before he had no cognizance, had never dreamed. A rough, popular adage has it that there is a woman at the bottom of everything, and, deleterious as, alas, the influence of woman has too often been in this world for ill, it is certain that her presence in the world has likewise oftener been a stupendous influence for good, the mother's affectionate and kindly solicitude, the wife's guidance through the darkest as well as the brightest hours of life, or in weakest childhood, the support of a sister's hand. All have been influences for earthly good, which often and oft have guided men through the storms of earth to the haven of heaven. With a lawyer's experience and acumen, and the sagacity of the man of the world, Mr. Lumley saw that there was an influence at work of which till now he had never dreamed. The marriage of the once wild, wandering, debt-laden, exiled Hubert Gonald to the beautiful Spanish-Mexican woman, her presentation to her husband of the three sons at one birth, their marvelous likeness each to each, then her subsequent separation from her husband with her two sons chosen by lot, the growth of Bertram to manhood, were the first four scenes. Then Hubert Gonald's rise to affluence as a Virginian planter, his service under General Lee in the Confederate Army, and subsequent death at the Battle of Five Forks, and ruin of his estate at Millbank by the American War and the freedom of his slaves, closed the first part. The subsequent recovery by the son of the old English ancestral home, the jealousy of the hot-blooded, discarded Spanish-Mexican wife, and the affiliation of the Mexican murder society calling themselves the Sons of Cain, the perpetration by the emissary of the Brotherhood of the ghastly crime which we have described, alas, but too successfully achieved by Michael Sullivan, alias Michael Gervois, and here the curtain falls. All this, when the lawyer pieced together incident by incident, piece by piece, as a child places piece by piece of some puzzle or picture map, combining all into one comprehensive picture, into one harmonious whole, formed a puzzle which he quite admitted to himself that, but for the cuteness of the American detective, he could never have solved. But when all the once mysterious acts of the drama arose clearly in the London lawyer's mind, it seemed to him as if he gazed on a picture drawn by some weird imagination guiding an artistic hand, or like the page of some romance. 
But even now, Mr. Lumley felt the drama was not complete. He felt that one act remained unplayed. It was an act in which he felt that it was his to play the leading part. The murderer, Michael Gervoir, in the written confession which we have reproduced, admitted that he was guilty of the crime of Bertram Gallant's murder. But in qualifying his guilt and protesting his innocence, the murderer confessed and declared as before his God that he owed his late master no ill will. He wrote that in the perpetration of the crime which he had committed and for which he was about to die, he was but the tool, the mere cat's paw in other hands. And in the truth of this part of the written confession, Mr. Lumley now fully believed. He therefore saw it as his duty again to act, resolved upon another coup, and again he called in the shrewdness, which he had by this time come fully to recognize, of Colonel Vandermeulen to his aid. We will again raise the curtain and shift the scene. Twice, to his intense disgust, had the little ferret man Paul Nugas lost the scent of his game. Twice he had been outwitted and befooled. Twice his quarry had eluded his grasp. But Paul Nugas uttered an irreligious oath that rather than again be frustrated, he would follow Merville Garnier into the East River or to anywhere beyond where the water wasn't cold. And Paul Nugas meant to keep his iniquitous vow. During these days, Colonel Vandermeulen, as an actor under the assumed and stage name of Wedmore Summers, never for a day lost sight of Lawrence Houghton, his familiar chum. If the lasso had to be thrown upon the wind, or the net to be cast upon the waters, he resolved that the throw should be accomplished with an unerring and a masterly hand. And a past master in his art, we have ever said Colonel Vandermeulen was. And so the snare was sprung. On the same day, and to prevent all collusion, and allowing for the difference between New York and London time, perhaps almost in the same hour, the two men of whom we have spoken throughout these pages as Lawrence Houghton and Merville Garnier were arrested, the former in London, the latter in New York and charged with being, in the manner of the crime of the murder of the master of Vernwood, accessories before and after the fact. Under an extradition warrant, Merville Garnier was brought to England to be tried together with his brother, Lawrence Houghton, in an English court for his crime. It is now no longer necessary for the purposes of our story that we should maintain around these two men the veil of incognito, and the obscurity which we had cast about their identity and their names. To prevent all possibility of communication or collusion, the men were imprisoned, previous to their appearance in court, in different parts of the country, in different jails. At length, the day appointed for the hearing of the case arrived. The great London conveyancer, Mr. Lumley, occupied a seat at the solicitor's table of the court. The magistrates took their seats on the bench. The preliminary business of the court was gone through, none of which we need detail. 
And then at last, the two men whose crimes no longer hoodwinked, deceived, or misled the keen, clear-sighted scrutiny of the law, and whose tricks the sagacity of Colonel Vandermeulen, aided, let us not forget, by his persevering little ferret man, had overcome, stood side by side in the dock of an English court. All eyes were directed to them, as in charge of constables they appeared. The curiosity of the community had been aroused, as we have often ere now said in the case, and they stood before a packed and crowded court. But here again was a new surprise. As the two prisoners entered the dock, Mr. Lumley raised his eyes. My reader, have you ever been addicted to that treacherous weakness of humanity, that insidious device of the wicked one to affect the overthrow of your reason, by tempting you to imbibe just so much of the cup which inebriates, just so much that your eyes play your reason false, and seem to multiply every person or everything you look upon by two? If you have, you have some idea of how Mr. Lumley felt when he first beheld the prisoners at the bar. He asked himself whether or not, by some blundering, the prisoners had been brought up separately, or whether, ere coming into court that morning, he had not partaken of just one glass too many of that fine, dry Clicquot which muddled his head while it rejoiced his heart and caused both his eyes to see at once what they ought by natural optical law to behold at twice. For there, before his eyes, stood the twin brothers, who, however they had shrouded themselves in mystery, and sought to conceal their identity upon the misleading veil of fictitious names, by the scant flattery and unvarnished truth of blind-eyed justice, stood before the world and before that tribunal, instead of Merville Garnier and Lawrence Houghton, brothers, two out of the three triplets, sons of the same parents born in the same hour on the same day as the remaining member of that strange trio, the murdered Bertram Gonald. The wondrous similarity of the two brothers as they stood in the dock each to each and of both to the late Bertram Gonald filled with amazement the minds of all. There were the same tall forms, the same intellectual faces, the same stature and the right cheek of each brother by a birthmark, which had affected or disfigured all three alike, was similarly scarred. Similarly, curled mustaches, and frequently there played on the face of each the same mocking, sardonic, Mephistophelian smile. Moreover, they were similarly dressed, and when the four long white hands rested on the front of the docks, the ring digit of each left hand was adorned by a similar sapphire ring, facsimiles of the genuine heirloom with which they had been provided by their discarded Spanish-Mexican mother, who had been the chief plotter in the crime. To all who beheld it, the likeness appeared as whimsical, if we can apply such a term to the men in such a place as it was miraculous, astonishing, and strange. To Colonel Vandermeulen, who sat in court, all the puzzling occurrences in connection with the perplexing case were explained. The scales of doubt and embarrassment completely fell from his marveling eyes. 
to Mr. Lumley and those in court who had been intimate with Bertram Gonald in life. The perfect likeness of the three brothers each to the other was all the more startling and strange. It was one of those freaks which nature, perhaps in her hours of idleness or dalliance, plays with creation and on man. But out of the labyrinth of puzzledom into which nature and this strange freak of her erratic fancy had caused these men, whom we have employed in the elaboration of this story to be involved, we will pass on to the consummation of our tale. The magisterial inquiry into the guilt of the two men Lawrence and Mervyn Gonald for being accessories to the murder of their brother Bertram passed off. Space does not allow us, and it is unnecessary to follow the details of the evidence adduced. With regard to them, justice was not swift. Her feet seemed hampered and fettered, and the clean hands of the blinded goddess for once seemed tied. Then there was a remand, for evidence sufficiently strong to convict seemed very difficult to find. For if justice is clear-eyed, her movements are deliberate and slow. There was, as we know, the written confession of Michael Gervois, the real murderer. But that document was hidden away in the pigeonholes of dogged officialism and straight-laced red tape. Besides, being a posthumous document, it was of no sufficient value as evidence to convict in the eye of the law of so serious a crime. Then there was another formal magisterial examination of the prisoners, and another and another formal remand. Then a serious matter arose before Mr. Lumley's prosecution. A serious stumbling block was thrown in his path. The late possessor being dead, and the title deeds of beautiful Vernwood going a-begging for an owner, the two surviving brothers Gonald, through a clever conveyancing lawyer, as clever perhaps, and a little more so, and a deal less scrupulous and respectable than the great conveyancer Mr. Lumley himself, claim the estate. The quirks and quibbles of British law are apt to turn queerly round, and the pros and cons of a case may resolve themselves into curious conclusions in incongruous holes. And thus now it became a question whether the two men in custody would be the winners of a wealthy estate or the losers themselves of life liberty, and all that the world holds dear. Then into that which took place at a private interview in Mr. Lumley's office, we will not too severely thrust the probe of our inquiring pen. Lawyers may have, and often have, strange reasons for doing strange things, and secrets enacted within the closed doors of lawyers' offices, like the utterances of the confessional, may be too sacred to know the light. Perhaps justice was cheated and deluded of her true own. But what is known is that the prosecution of the two brothers, Lawrence and Mervyn Gonald, was abandoned, and they stood upon English soil as free men. Whatever compromise was arrived at, however Mr. Lumley peddled with or lent himself to play into the hands of crime, we shall never probably be told. Perhaps... Mr. Lumley had an eye to those future golden days when he should be released from the trammels and martyrdom of the law. And perhaps the distant vision arose upon his eyes of beautiful Vernwood in some longed-for future, 
as his own beautiful home. But this is mere surmise. We know not. We have said that lawyers have strange reasons for doing strange things. If that was Mr. Lumley's dreams, it was, as we must show, a dream to be dashed, to fade and vanish as the dreamer awoke. End of section 35 Read by Paul Hampton